if you were to go around and ask a bunch of random people, you know, who was the greatest person who ever lived, what kind of responses do you think you would get? And since it's, since it's such a broad question, I think the answers would say more about what that person values and how do they define greatness. If someone values wealth above all, they might say Elon Musk or some other famous billionaire like that. If they value art or music above all, the answers would widely vary, become very subjective, but you might hear the likes of Monet, Da Vinci, Van Gogh, to Elvis or Michael Jackson. If sports consumes their interests, I'm sure you would hear the likes of Michael Jordan or Muhammad Ali, whose nickname was the greatest. Some might cling to amazing, unique, one-of-kind achievements in their definition of greatness, and then you might hear Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. Overall, though, I think a lot of people associate greatness with just being at the top of the food chain, and so a lot of world leaders would make the list, from Abraham Lincoln to Caesar Augustus, and can't forget the name of the one who made such a permanent mark on history that greatness is in his name, Alexander the Great. It's an intriguing question to which everyone would probably have their own answer, who was the greatest who ever lived. With that in mind, I think it would be fascinating to hear how the Lord Jesus himself would answer that question, not including himself. Who would he say other than himself? But it would tell you how he too defined greatness while Christ was on earth. How, how did, what did he find most valuable? What did he think made for greatness? And look, as Christians, shouldn't that be what we seek? Well, believe it or not, Jesus did effectively answer that question. He told people straight up who was the greatest man who ever lived. And by that man's example, we get quite a bit of instruction when it comes to greatness in God's eyes. Now, if, you're here, if you were here last week, it really should come as no surprise who this is. It's talking about none other than John the Baptist. But even if you know the answer Jesus gives, it's still surprising because none of the things that make for greatness in the world's eyes characterize John. He certainly wasn't rich or powerful. He had no money or possessions. He had forsaken a love for the world. He commanded no armies. John ruled over nothing. Most of his life, he was a lone recluse living in the desert. John had no special skill or ability. He produced no great work or achievement in the world's eyes. He really had nothing to show for his life concerning the world. And to make matters worse, at the end, he was executed by the state. So I'm certain that if you put the name of John the Baptist side by side with any other great person from history, any of the names we mentioned, to those in the world, John would never win. He would never be considered as great. Certainly not the greatest who ever lived. And that's why it's still shocking to hear the Lord Jesus regard John as the greatest man who had ever lived. It's also intriguing. It makes us wonder, like, why did Jesus say that? And clearly, Jesus has a different value system. How exactly does he define greatness in the eyes of God? I think you would want to know. I mean, if you're here as a Christian, you should want to know that. It's not wrong to pursue greatness in God's eyes. It's not an evil desire. Several times we see the disciples jockeying for greatness in the kingdom, and Jesus never rebukes that desire. You should want to be great in God's eyes. It's just that they were seeking greatness by the same old means of the world, and so Jesus set them straight what it really looks like to be great before God. And the passage we have this morning, Jesus does the same thing, this time, though, by highlighting the example of John the Baptist, showing what makes for greatness in his kingdom. This is something we need to consider. So you can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 11. Follow along with us, Matthew chapter 11. Last week, we entered Matthew 11, which takes us through a larger narrative section going through Matthew 12. So far, it's like the tide has been coming in. There's been growing excitement and anticipation surrounding the ministry of Jesus. But here in chapter 11, it's where the tide shifts. And the tide starts going out. Now, it's not low tide yet, but we start seeing the beginning of serious opposition to Jesus. Rejection beginning to mount. And so in these two chapters, 11 and 12, we're going to see several wrong responses to Jesus. 
many of which stem from just misunderstanding the nature of his messianic ministry. We found last week, though, that this, this catalog of wrong responses begins with none other than John the Baptist. Now, John did not reject Jesus. He's not guilty of unbelief. But we found that for just a brief moment, he entertained some doubt. John had his own messianic expectations, and when Jesus wasn't meeting those, left him wondering, like he says back in verse 3 of chapter 11, are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Now, of course, John had to ask that question through his disciples because he was currently in prison, and that just made everything worse. He'd been suffering for about a year in a dungeon, and that type of prolonged suffering can whittle down anyone's faith. But Jesus is tender with John. He sends him back a response designed to repair and rebuild his faith and confidence in him because he is the expected one. You should not look for anyone else. We too should have total faith and confidence in Christ. Learning about the cause and solution to doubt from John's example. That's much of what we considered last week going through verses 1 through 6. But now before moving on from the subject of John the Baptist... Jesus has some more to say. He has responded to John, but now he wants to say a few things about John. Look at the beginning of verse 7. It says, As these men were going away, the, the disciples of John, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. So the disciples of John, they've got their answer. They're going to head back to their master who's in prison. Off they go. But John's question itself, wondering if Jesus really was the Messiah in his moment of weakness, might give the wrong impression that John was weak or fickle. This moment of doubt might even discredit the testimony of John about Jesus to some people, but that should not be the case. Here, Jesus feels the need to uphold and affirm John as a a true man of God, a true prophet, even great. Furthermore, it appears at this time that public opinion about Jesus and John was shifting. Jesus is starting to face mounting opposition, and what do you know? So was his forerunner. And just by way of preview, the passage we'll see next week. But look at how the, the complaints about Jesus and John were rising. Look down at verse 16, the following passage. He goes on, Jesus teaching, he says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not mourn. And then Christ interprets verse 18, for John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. All this goes to say, like, as the the disciples of John leave, Jesus takes this opportunity to testify of John. He's setting the record straight and clearing up any doubts that people might have about John. When it comes to John's role as prophet and forerunner to the Messiah, when it comes to John's greatness, you should have no doubt. And so we find here, as John spent so much time bearing witness of Jesus, Now, Jesus feels the need to bear witness to John. Let's go ahead and read this passage in advance. It's a little long, but I still want us to see it. Matthew 11, 7 through 15. And follow along. Let's read this. Matthew 11, verse 7. It says, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. 
for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now in this testimony, John is, or rather Jesus, he's upholding the greatness of John the Baptist. In so doing, he's really saying a lot about kingdom greatness, something to which we should aspire. So we're going to start by, by gathering from Jesus these three roles that made John great. Three roles that made John the Baptist great, after which we'll be able to reflect on what makes for kingdom greatness. But we'll start with these, these three roles that made John the Baptist great. So first, John was a prophet. John was a prophet. Look at verse 7 again. The disciples of John leave, and then Jesus says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Jesus begins this speech now to the crowds, and he repeats this, the same rhetorical question three times. What did you go out to see? He's talking about John. The crowds would have been very familiar with John the Baptist. Everybody knew him. And to start, Jesus is going to establish the character of John by, by way of contrast. Jesus, he's ministering right now in Galilee to the north. John the Baptist, he ministered where? Judea to the south. Not just Judea, but the wilderness across the Jordan. This dry, arid, inhospitable wilderness that was John's base of operations. But even still, thousands of Jews, many of whom came from Galilee, streamed to the wilderness to go see and hear John, this prophet who had arisen. Which means that some of these people Jesus is talking to, if they're coming from North Galilee, they're traveling 80 to 100 miles round trip to go see this guy John in the wilderness, in the desert. This is an age before planes or trains or cars. And so Jesus, he's asking the people really to try and stir up their memory of John. What could have possibly motivated you to make such a long, difficult journey to the wilderness What'd you go see? What, what on earth could have led you to make such a journey? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? You have these tall papyrus-like reeds growing all throughout the Jordan Valley. You can think of our like stateside. We have uh, you know, cattail reeds. They're long. They're slender. They're top-heavy, which means just the slightest breeze just pushes them around. They're constantly moving with any wind, bending each way the wind turns And so it's a pretty obvious word picture for being just fickle or vacillating. And as a wind of public opinion or religious pressure blows, how many religious leaders bend? They just change their position based on what's popular. In political terms, the term for this in recent history has been flip-flopping. How many politicians, they they flip-flop their position on these key issues of principle just because the tides of public opinion have shifted. They want to be on the popular side. And it was pretty famous throughout the 90s and 2000s. You had people like Biden, Obama, the Clintons, very famously and ardently opposing gay marriage, all on the record, even with bills, opposing gay marriage. They all stood firm on the definition of marriage, one man, one woman, and that's it. They signed it. But by the late 2010s, public opinion had shifted, and so they shifted as well. And now they're viewed as brave champions and forerunners for the cause. But a bunch of Republicans, they all do the same thing. How many people of principle are there? Is that really someone you want to follow? But it really shows you what such leaders are really serving, namely self. They're chasing popularity, bending however they need to bend just to keep their grip on power. But not John. John was not a reed. He did not move. He was like an oak. He was steadfast and immovable, meaning just a man of principle, basing his life, his preaching on just the uncompromised word of God. Now, for a second rhetorical question to show who John was by way of contrast, verse 8, he says, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Now, obviously, these people did not make the long trek into the wilderness to see a bendable, man-pleasing preacher. Nor did they go out to see a self-indulgent, soft preacher. You know, one living in comfort and ease. Today, we might say a prosperity preacher. 
And that's kind of what's behind this second word picture of a man dressed in soft clothing. Especially back then, what did it say about a man who wore you know, soft linen? It said he, he did not work hard. He was not a hard worker. And can you imagine how long would a, a firefighter or a construction worker last wearing a silk robe? Now, soft clothing was a sign of luxury, and it was reserved for those, especially back then, who had attained a high position. As Jesus said, those who wear soft clothing, you can find them in King's Palace. And you don't find them serving others, working hard. They're, they're being served. They're enjoying the, the luxury that comes with their elevated status. But really, such self-seeking leaders back then, there were a dime a dozen. People did not have to travel very far if they just wanted to see a man dressed in Soft clothing. Go look at the Romans. Look at Herod's palace. Again, this is not John. You remember how John dressed? We actually hear. Back in Matthew 3, verse 4, he had a garment of camel's hair held together by a leather rope, a leather belt. It sounds like just the least comfortable attire possible. But it was rugged. It was built for desert wilderness living. John was no comfort seeker. He was austere, and John was ready voluntarily to deny self that he just might be freed up for full service, full devotion to the Lord and his purposes. And so in all, Jesus is saying that John was not unstable or weak, soft or fickle, worldly or self-indulgent. Rather, he was steadfast and strong, bold and uncompromising, selfless and content. He was just a man of God, intent on serving others. He laid down his life, really entirely, to serve God's purposes. That sounds like someone worth going out into the wilderness to see, especially when you see what Jesus adds in verse 9. Who was John? Verse 9. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. And this, this really is what Jesus is getting at. He's stirring up the remembrance. John was a prophet. Why is that a big deal? Because for 400 years, no prophet had arisen in Israel. God's authoritative voice had gone silent. But no longer. The fullness of times was upon the people. And when John came on the scene, everyone really believed he was a prophet. And now, even though he's been rejected and imprisoned, lest the people have any second thoughts, any doubts about John or his testimony... Jesus reminds them who they went out to see. Now, he really was a prophet, which, by the way, means everything he said about Jesus, the Messiah, was also true. But that's who John was, and that's part of what made him great. Like the prophets of old, John was faithful to his calling. He spoke the words of the Lord. He, he delivered God's message to the people, which was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Return to God. For the Savior and judge is at the door. That's a message all people still need to hear and heed. Today is a day of salvation, but you don't even know if you'll have a tomorrow. So you had better repent and believe today in Christ the Savior. But as for Christ's witness of John, the first role that made him great was prophet. He was last in a long line of great prophets from Noah to Samuel, Daniel, many more. But Jesus says he was greater than all these. So why is that? I mean, unlike Moses or Elijah, John performed no miracles. Unlike Isaiah or Jeremiah, John wrote nothing down. He did not pen any inspired scripture. So why would Jesus think he's greater than these other prophets? That's because John played an additional role in serving the Lord, Again to verse 9, he says, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. John was a prophet, but he was also more than a prophet. What does that mean? Well, it means that unlike the other prophets, John was also himself the subject of prophecy. He played an additional role in God's plan, one that was foretold by the other prophets. They spoke about him, too. So the second role that, John, that made John great, John was a forerunner. John was a prophet. John was a forerunner. 
Jesus tells us what he's talking about in verse 10. He says, this is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now with this, Jesus references Malachi chapter 3. Malachi was the last prophetic voice of the Old Testament. Even after returning from exile, the Jews were obstinate. They were still rebelling against God, unbelieving. And so through Malachi, God told them, look, a day is coming. It's a day where God will save and judge, purge and purify. And specifically, Malachi 3.1, God says that he will send his messenger and he will clear the way before me. And it's Yahweh God speaking, envisions the day of his coming. And this messenger will prepare the way and God himself will come to his people. Now, with this reference here, Jesus, he's making two points. The first, indirect, he's indirectly claiming to be God. You go back and read Malachi 3.1, this uh, forerunner promise. Jesus is saying, look, John's a fulfillment. He is this messenger. He's sent to make ready the way of whom? Jesus, right? The Messiah. He's come to make ready the way of the Lord. Jesus is that Lord. The thing is, you go back and read Malachi 3, it's Yahweh God speaking, this messenger will come and he will prepare the way, it says, for me. Yahweh God was the one to come down to deliver his people. So what does that say about Jesus? He's applying this to himself. Is this not Jesus affirming he is Yahweh God incarnate? Indeed he is. Now that, that's its own huge deal we could spend a lot of time on, but it's, it's not actually Christ's main point. And so we'll focus on that. He's focusing our attention on John. <clears throat> And he's connecting the dots between this, this special Old Testament prophecy and John the Baptist. Specifically, he's affirming John is that messenger. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. And it's a most special role. It's something Matthew already told us about back in Matthew chapter 3, where we learned about John. We saw how John came in fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy about this forerunner. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, but... Matthew repeats it, Matthew 3, verse 3. It says of John, This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You can see, though, why Jesus means John was more than a prophet, and he was the subject of multiple prophecies. John was destined by the Lord to play a great role, that of forerunner, to the Messiah. There's no higher privilege among men than to be the one to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. But Jesus takes it a step further, though. We're going out of order, but jump down to verse 14. Jesus comes back to this thought of John fulfilling prophecy in verse 14. He says later, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So look, we got Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 43, now Malachi 4.5. It's the third verse that spoke of John. These, that takes us to the, the last two verses of the entire Old Testament. In the last two verses, God promises to send Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord. And now Jesus is adding that, that John comes in fulfillment of that promise too. Now we need to clarify John was not like the reincarnation of Elijah. That's actually what many Jews had essentially come to believe. You might recall, Elijah never died. He passed directly to heaven. And so many Jews came to believe that, based on the Malachi promise, Elijah would like physically, literally return or essentially be reincarnated. But that is something John denies. In John one twenty one, some Jews asked John, are you Elijah? He says, no. But he's countering their misunderstanding. He's saying, I'm not the second coming of Elijah in the flesh. That's what he means. But Luke 1.17 affirms John did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. We have so many parallels between the ministries of John and Elijah. John dressed like Elijah. That's the whole point. That's why he wore that. This was Elijah's garb. John lived in the wilderness like Elijah. John preached repentance like Elijah. John contested with kings like Elijah and more. 
But John was still greater than Elijah because he was closer to Jesus. He was used as the forerunner to the Savior of the world. As Jesus reveals this truth in verse 14, he says, if you are willing to accept it, that doesn't mean it's conditional like John is Elijah only if you believe. It's not what it means. It's just expressing how difficult this truth was to grasp, especially for those living before the cross. You know, there are many prophecies concerning the Messiah and his forerunner that were difficult to understand, and that's still the case. With that in mind, a quick side note, I want to clarify one thing about these forerunner prophecies. In fact, you can turn back. You know what book comes before Matthew is Malachi. So just like flip left to Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. Let's read those last two verses. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last words of the Lord before those 400 years of silence. And specifically, they state that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. But let's read it. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. God says to the prophet, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And that's the end. Now, this Elijah figure here appears will be successful in bringing about a national restoration of Israel, that they might be spared from God's judgment. Now, that did not happen with the coming of John. Israel did not believe, and they were smited with a curse. So once again, scattered from their land, their temple destroyed. But you should know that just as there are two comings of the Messiah, there are two comings of the forerunner. In other words, Jesus affirms truly that John the Baptist came in fulfillment of these forerunner prophecies, but in an initial limited sense. John truly prepared the way for the first coming of the Messiah, but it seems another will come to fully and finally fulfill these forerunner prophecies. There will be another Elijah to come. I say this just because Jesus said this. This was what he taught. So go ahead and flip back to Matthew Go to Matthew 17. Go past chapter 11. Go to Matthew 17. This is now right after the transfiguration. And you remember who shows up with Jesus at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And the disciples witness this, but they do not know what's going on. They are very confused. So they ask Jesus about it, and he he tells them a little something. Matthew 17, look at verse 10. It says, and his disciples asked him, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now you see verse 12, Jesus said, Elijah already came. And there it's very clear he was talking about John the Baptist. The disciples get that as well. But Israel did not recognize him. The world did not recognize him. He was rejected, oppressed, eventually killed. And very soon, Jesus will suffer the exact same fate. Just as the forerunner was not received, neither will the Messiah be received in his first coming. But did you notice verse 11? Right before that, Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That is a little cryptic because Jesus, he phrases that in the future tense and it's clearly in contrast to verse 12. So in verse 11, Jesus is certainly not talking about John the Baptist when he says Elijah is coming. John was already dead at this point. Jesus himself expects another Elijah who's still coming and he will successfully restore all things before the second coming of the Messiah. Now, we don't need to get hung up on this too long, but just understand that there are, just as there are two comings of the Messiah, it seems like there are two comings of this forerunner figure. The second coming will correspond with that great and terrible day of the Lord. But now, back for John the Baptist, Matthew 11. His coming corresponds 
to the great day of salvation. As the Messiah came first to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Really though, what a hinge John was. He's like the last domino to fall of the old covenant era that just kind of gets ready, prepares for the new covenant era. And that really brings us to the third role John played that made him great. Number three, John was a turning point. John was a turning point. Verse 12. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Now, this verse is known for being notoriously challenging to interpret because we got these two terms, that verb for suffers violence and then the related noun for violent men. Both these terms can be taken in a positive or negative sense, giving you four different total options. Now, for the sake of time, I'll just argue for what I think fits best. You know, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, meaning like since John's formal ministry began, something's happened since then. He introduces his subject, which is the kingdom of heaven. That's a broad term, speaking of the reign of God over this world. <clears throat> but since John started ministering, something has been happening to the kingdom of heaven. And so what? <clears throat> well, you have this term, biadzitai. It's this verb for overpowering something. The Greek does not clarify the voice of this verb. It could be middle or passive. If taken in the passive voice, this is a negative statement. Kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. The kingdom is being oppressed. If taken in the middle voice, then the sense is the kingdom is being entered forcibly. In other words, the kingdom is forcefully advancing. It's pressing forward. It becomes a positive statement. Now, there's some truth on both sides. But I think the ordinary usage, which is the middle voice, makes most sense. Jesus is making a positive statement. That since John started preaching repentance, the kingdom rule of God has been advancing. Not all, but many hearts were prepared and made ready for the Lord. The darkness has been pushed back. You see this furthered by the ministry of Jesus himself, where disease and demons were, were banished from the land, really as a foretaste of the full restoration his kingdom rule will bring. And since John, that kingdom rule has been forcefully advancing. Now, to me, what, what seals the deal with this view is the cross-reference of Luke 16, verse 16. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. But you have Jesus teaching at a later time, but he says the exact same thing. Now, he's an itinerant preacher, so he often repeated himself. But in Luke 16, he makes it very clear that this was meant to be a positive statement. So just listen, Luke 16, verse 16. Jesus said the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And there Jesus uses the same verb, the exact same verbal form as the term from Matthew 11, verse 12. Only there, it's very clear. It's supposed to be in the middle voice. It's meant to be a positive statement. This kingdom has been offered since John. And many are forcibly entering it, rushing upon it. It has been advancing. We would say, amen. Now, back to verse 12, though. There next comes a contrast. Because Jesus adds at the end of verse 12, he says, and violent men take it by force. I don't think that's the most helpful translation. It doesn't really say much. But you have this term, violent men. It's, it's almost always used in a negative sense. You put it together with the verb harpazo, to seize something. And it speaks of an act of violence being done upon something. So put together, I think, verse 12. It's, it's a cryptic little verse. But I think Jesus is saying that ever since John began his ministry, this kingdom has been forcefully advancing, marching forward, just like Luke 16 says, amen. But at the same time, violent men have been trying to attack it, to stop it. The arrival of the king did not stop all opposition to the kingdom. And remember, that's actually what John expected. That's what he got hung up on. If you were here last week, he thought the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he'll bring a swift end 
to all opposition to God's kingdom, of course. But Jesus wasn't doing that. That's why John had some doubt. Turns out the Messiah won't end all opposition to his kingdom rule until his second coming. But for now, you have Jesus reiterating the, the expectation of opposition he gave his disciples back in chapter 10. Like, here's good news. This, this kingdom will advance. Many will believe and become kingdom citizens. But at the same time, this kingdom rule will still be attacked and opposed by wicked, violent men. I mean, look, this is something John himself was experiencing firsthand. He saw much ministry fruit. Many were baptized for repentance. But at the end of the day, he was being violently oppressed. And pretty soon, they would take his life. And it should come to no surprise then that the Messiah would suffer the same fate as his forerunner. But this is a turning point. Something started with John. It's like the light you see before the sun actually rises. He heralded the dawning of a new age, age of salvation, where no longer would God let the nations go their own way. Rather, when like Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of the times came, God sent forth his son. And now all people everywhere are commanded to repent and believe in Jesus, lest they perish. But all redemptive history was hinging in this moment from B.C. to A.D. And, and John kicked that off. John was the beginning of that turning. There's no greater role a person can play. And Jesus continues, verse 13. He said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Law and prophets reference the Old Testament. But notice, both have a prophetic voice. Not just the prophets, the law also looked forward to what God was ultimately doing in his plan of redemption revolving around the Messiah. That's why Jesus said back in Matthew 5, 17, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. They all pointed to him. He's the, the fulfillment of all their expectations but the point here is John is the last and greatest voice pointing forward to Jesus. He's the last in a long line of these witnesses. You read 1 Peter 1, it says the prophets of old longed to see the days of the Messiah, but they never did. They stood from afar. They, they welcomed it from a distance. But John, he was the one God actually used just to open that last door, to, to usher in the Christ and his age of salvation. So, Matthew 11, you step back of this passage, big picture, like Jesus, he's talking to the crowds, he's talking about John, what's he saying? He's testifying to the greatness of John, that he is a prophet, first role, he's a true prophet of God, and more than that, he's the forerunner to the Messiah, long-awaited. He's a turning point of all redemptive history. You get all this, you put all this together, you understand what Jesus says about John, then the climax of this passage actually makes a lot more sense. That comes right in the middle, verse 11. This is why Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Hopefully now you can see why Jesus says this. There's the Lord's answer. He's the greatest who ever lived. And Jesus does not give us a ruler or a politician, an athlete, an artist, an inventor. He gives us John the Baptist. To the world, it makes no sense. But to those who see God's redemptive hand in history, turning all things to bring glory to himself through the salvation wrought by his son, it makes perfect sense because it was John's role in this plan that made him the greatest. Now, it's not quite over because the fact of John being the greatest who ever lived, that's not actually the most shocking part of this passage. It's not actually the climax. As much as Jesus is bearing witness to John and upholding his greatness, he's doing all this that he can make a greater point to the crowd and to us. You know, with the paramount greatness of John in mind, everything we've considered, it makes what Jesus says next even more shocking and instructive. So verse 11. <clears throat> now you can understand. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So you get this contrast, right? It's like 
It's like you find the, the greatest high school quarterback ever, the best stats, most, most athletic, but compared to the worst NFL quarterback there is, the bench-warming third string who never plays, there's still no comparison. He's still miles ahead. That's the type of contrast Jesus is building with John. That the very least person in the kingdom of heaven is still way greater than John, who was the greatest person who had lived up to that point. And so with this, Jesus moves from teaching on the greatness of John to teaching on the greatness of his kingdom and those who belong to it. How do you understand this? I mean, very clearly, Jesus, he's not putting down John. He's not suggesting John is not a part of this coming kingdom. No. But Jesus is using the great greatness of John to show, by contrast now, that the vastly greater greatness of his kingdom, of belonging to his kingdom. And so what makes the least citizen of his kingdom greater than John? It's another way of asking, like, why is it better to live on this side of the cross? And with that in mind, let me suggest three reasons. Three more reasons why, if you're in Christ, you're greater than John. First, we have greater privileges. The Lord Jesus came to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. He ushered in a new stage of redemptive history where sins were not merely covered, but actually atoned for once for all through his sacrifice. And so just as the new covenant is greater than the old, so those who live in the new covenant are greater than those who lived in the old. Greater privileges come with this new territory. And we're talking union with Christ, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, emboldened access to God, just to name a few. John and the other prophets looked forward to this era when the floodgates of God's grace would open to all the nations. And John stood on the threshold of this new age, but he never got to step inside. He died before it technically started. John was like Moses. He delivered the people right up to the promised land, to the very border of the promised land. He got to see it from afar, but then he died before they all crossed the Jordan. He never got to go in. And so John did not get to see with his own eyes or understand the glory of the cross or the blessings that accompany redemption after the resurrection. But now, even the least member of the church is greater because we get to personally experience all the privileges that accompany new covenant salvation. Secondly, we have a greater perspective. And by this, we mean that even the least Christian living on this side of the cross has a fuller understanding of Christ and the gospel than John the Baptist. You realize that every Christian, if you're a truly a believer, by definition, you know the gospel better than any Old Testament prophet. Like John and the prophets were living in the age of shadows before the cross. And even John did not fully understand God's redemptive plan. That explains this question back in verse 3. Like, are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? He had trouble making sense of the messianic ministry of Jesus because his eyes were still veiled. Like all the prophets, John did not have perspective to see two comings of the Christ. He did not understand the unfolding progressive nature of God's kingdom. But any person living after the cross has a better perspective of God's plans. Whereas John looked forward and could see only shadows, we now look back, we can see substance. So imagine you're at a theater, you're watching a play, but your back is to the stage and you're staring at the back wall and all you can see are the shadows of the actors cast on the back wall. You watch the drama unfold, but you're limited in understanding because you can only see the shadows. That's like the Old Testament prophets. They heralded God's coming kingdom truly, but only in a shadow form. So now take a person in that drama or in that play. He's got the worst seat in the house, like total corner nosebleeds, but he's facing the stage. That person, the person with the worst seat in the house, still has a better view of the unfolding drama than those with their backs to the stage because they can see not the shadows, but the substance. And that's what Jesus is saying. Just by contrast, any new covenant believer is greater than John. Just in the sense of their privileged position in redemptive history, 
and just the, the high-definition perspective it brings on God's redemptive plan through a crucified yet risen Savior. In fact, this leads to the third reason we are greater. Third, the least kingdom citizen is greater than John because we have a greater pronouncement. We have a greater pronouncement. Precisely because we have greater privileges and perspective, we are able to, to give a greater pronouncement of the gospel. We have a greater ability to witness Christ and his full gospel. Just think about this. It means that the least Christian has the ability to be a greater herald of Jesus than John the Baptist. It's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. You would not otherwise think you could be greater than John. I mean, you you don't come close to these formal roles he played as prophet and forerunner. But actually, you have the potential to do his job better because you have the full picture. You can be a greater witness of the gospel with greater clarity than the greatest prophet. You know, we've learned so much about the greatness of John the Baptist this morning. And for that, stand alone, you should just praise God for how he used and raised up a faithful servant. And in one sense, we can't compare. We're not called to be God's prophet or forerunner or turning point of all redemptive history. But we've also learned, by contrast, that just just through Christ, just in Christ, the least member of his kingdom is still greater than John. In the end, we, we really find this notion of greatness all comes down to proximity to Jesus. Just how close are you to Jesus? That's what makes us great. At the end of the day, no one's great compared to the Lord. He's the only great one. He's God and King, Lord and Savior. Any greatness we're given just comes by his grace, and it's derived by how close are we to the great one. John was the closest there ever was to the Christ before the cross. The Lord dwelt with him closer than anyone else. But now after the cross, even the least true believer, the Lord dwells in him. What makes any of us great is our proximity to Christ. And so knowing this, you should draw near to him. You should probably follow him, imitate him closely. And be thankful for the high privileges he has given you. Just by virtue of your calling and choosing, we now know this mystery that was hidden from past ages and generations. That's Colossians 1.26. We now get to know this mystery hidden from all them. What is it? He says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You really would do well to stop and consider your privileges. If you know Christ, what do you have in Christ? Too often, I think we, we focus on what we lack what we long for, and it messes us up. Like, we don't have perfect health. The curse remains. We don't have sinless perfection. The flesh remains. We don't have freedom from temptation. Satan remains. We don't have freedom from trouble. Just evil remains. And so it's easy then to focus on all we lack and long for and and complain about our troubles Now, it's not wrong to take these concerns, legitimate concerns to the Lord in prayer, crying out to him, knowing that there are even greater things, a greater glory is still promised to come, Romans 8.18. But the point is, if you just constantly set your mind on all you lack, it's only going to produce grumbling, discontentment, depression. Rather, you should fill your mind with all you have in Christ. You should think often of your advantages just by being, even if you're the last one in, the least citizen of his kingdom, still, by definition, what do you have? You've got forgiveness of sins, justification, new birth, new life, reconciliation with God, adoption into his family, the full indwelling of his Holy Spirit. You've got the completed scriptures, the power of prayer, the church, fellowship, and so much more. You need to remember what the Lord has already done for you, what you have in Christ. And if you set your mind on that each and every day, that's going to produce in you a spirit, totally different spirit, of thanksgiving, joy, peace, worship. You're going to start saying things like Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And so how often do you truly give thanks for Christ and just what you have in him? You need to appreciate your privileged position, your greater perspective. Don't take these things for granted. And then lastly, don't, don't squelch your greater pronouncement. Like, don't squander the amazing role God has given to all believers to be a herald like John, but an even greater herald than John, because we can announce now the full gospel, the clear gospel of Jesus Christ, that this sinless Savior died on the cross to make full atonement for sins, that rose on the third day, and he offers to those who repent and believe in him forgiveness, new and eternal life. God has put his power to save in this gospel message. And so we must not be silent about it. Jesus finished his short speech to the crowd that day by saying, verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says that whenever he wants you to really pay attention. And so let not the greatness of John go unnoticed, nor the greater greatness of kingdom citizenship. And for all of us who've been made great as members of that kingdom all by grace, let us not waste our grace gifts, which we can use here in this life. It's time for us now to just pick up where John left off and make much of the great name of Christ. Let's do that as his church. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for all your grace gifts. All that we have is from you. It's also for you and to you. To you be the glory. What do we have? Our lives are yours, given to us by grace. And knowing Christ's salvation is ours. New birth, a place in your kingdom is ours. You've lavished us with grace gifts. Eternal salvation, you've wiped out our record of sins. You've given us an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven for us. New life here below, filled with your spirit. We could go on. You've given us everything we need to know you, to serve you, to enjoy you. We don't lack. May we never complain. Give us just this blessedness and contentment in Christ to serve him with our days. May we look to John, our, our, our brother, our example of one who given, uh, happy to give his life to serve you. Happy to play whatever role given under the name of the great one, and that is Christ alone. And here this morning who have not known him or bowed the knee to him, show them his glory. Lift the veil from their eyes to see their own sin, their own lack and need. A judgment that is coming, but the, the only way of escape is bowing, confessing, following this Savior and his gospel. Cause them to believe, open their eyes, that they would see the greatness of this Christ we exalt him this, this morning as his church. We bear his name. May we represent him well. He is the great one. We just want to follow him, be like him. We thank you that you've given us all we need to do just that, to press us on to be faithful, faithful stewards of all the grace gifts we've been given. It's in Christ's great name we pray. Amen.